History Lecture 65, Rabbi Blaiway. Uh, today we're going to focus on Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Uh, we've met him before, and we saw him. Our first glimpse of Rabbi Shimon was uh, as the student who asked whether Mayriv was an obligation or a, or or chova or rishus or something that we uh, that, that, it, that it's not optional, but rather it's something that we're permitted to do or we're. we're what's that? He had an agenda. Okay. It's the Gemara Brachos where the big conflict uh, broke out between Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel, the Nasi, and uh, with the coup, exactly, and, and Rabbi Yeshua. Um, but now he really, I mean, now, especially after the, um, the death, the murder of his Rebbe, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Shimon really emerges. Uh, even so, we have. This is a generation of many great names that we've met briefly already. And one of the great names is Rabbi Yehuda. I mean, Rabbi Yehuda, who is the Stam Rabbi Yehuda of the Mishnah. When you see in the Mishnah, it says Rabbi Yehuda, it's not referring to Rabbi Yehuda and Nasi, as sometimes people make that mistake. Um, it's Rabbi Yehuda Barilai, this Rabbi Yehuda. And Stam Rabbi Shimon is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And for example, they have a number of very famous arguments, let's say by Shabbos Kodesh. Uh, when, when we hear them arguing over issues like Malach Hashem and Tzrich Lagufa and Davar Hashem and and other very fundamental issues, uh, and, and, and all over Shas, really. Um, the Romans prefer Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Yehuda Barilai. Uh, we'll tell the story br- shortly about why they prefer him. Um, and they insinuate him as the official god. They have the power to do that. They say, okay, you're our man for the Jews. They prefer him over Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the Nasi. And the Sanhedrin always goes, the leading place of Torah always follows the leading sage of the times. As we last found it, the Sanhedrin was in Usha, where they made a number of those impactful takanos that we mentioned yesterday. Um, now the Sanhedrin follows Rabbi Yehuda to Shfaram, which is nearby. Today, a predominantly Arab and Druze village in the north, uh, where, among other things, you might find if you go, as you drive in there, the traditional gravesite of Rabbi Yehuda bin Baba. Uh, but there are ruins of a destroyed synagogue from the 18th century, and um, Shfaram, one associates with Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, that's where the Sanhedrin was. Were there it, no Jews there? Uh, no, there was a Jewish community. There was a Jewish community there uh, up until the 1920s. And uh, what there was to, uh, in, in more recent times, in your lifetime, in the early 2000s, there was a, um, was it a soldier or just a Jewish man who went crazy and uh, started, started um, murdering Arabs on a local bus and they lynched him. It and it caused riots. What? That was a separate story. That you're, that you're describing. We're talking about, I'm talking specifically about Shram. You're talking about Dr. Baruch Goldstein. <coughs> that was in, the, in, in uh, 1994, I think it was. Yeah, 94, and this is, this is 2004, 2005, uh, this other episode in Shvaram. Anyway, Shvaram was. Wait, isn't it called, it's called Shvaram today, right? That's unfamiliar to me. I, 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 I think it's called Shvaram. Yeah. I think the name has been retained. Um, but he's there, and there are some of the Chachamim, but some of the big names of this time are not with him. As we mentioned yesterday, the Gedolim are not all centrally located. The Nasi, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, Rabbi Meir Balanes, Rabbi Nasan Abavli, who we met briefly yesterday, and a um, still not emerged Rabbi Huda Nasi, who's, who's younger than the others. Um, most Chachamim, in fact, remain back in Usha. <laughs> Usha is more of the Makom Taira, and in Usha, they're more removed, secluded from the Romans, and that's just the way they like it, thanks very much. Um, we find that young Rebbe, young though he is, sometimes disagrees with his father. The uh, Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai and his son, who is a peer of Rabbi Yudha Nasi, uh, and one finds them together in the Gemara. His name is Rabbi Alazar. We'll talk about him too. Um, they are described as Sadikim Gumorim, which we speak in 
general, the, our culture is one, sometimes it's given to superlatives, so we often describe, oh, you know, who is that person? Oh, he's, he's a tzaddik gamor. It's an expression that we tend to lavish uh, about maybe a little bit too loosely, um, but when the Gemara tells us that they were tzaddikim gamorim, absolute righteous men, we're meant to understand that literally. Um, they were of a different dimension. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rav Asher Weiss, one of the uh, preeminent Talmud Chachamim today um, from remote, he points out that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, even though he doesn't say as many dinim, his name doesn't appear as frequently as Rabbi Yehuda's. How frequently does Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli's name appear in the Mishnah? Why, he's the most frequently mentioned Tana in the entire Mishnah, which is something that you'd like to put on your resume too, wouldn't wait, you? Wait, he's not referred to as that, right? Just Rabbi He's often Rabbi Yehuda, occasionally he's Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, but, any, but his name appears more frequently than any other Tana. But Rabbi Shimon, if you wanted to get, into, get, get all superlative about Rabbi Shimon, his, his <coughs> record is that he has more dinim, more halachas said in his name than um, any other Tana. He has over 1,500 dinim, specific halachas mentioned his name. We, we learn, in other words, a vast amount of halachas from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and of those 1,500 dinim, the 33rd mentioned in Shas, the 33rd in order, if you, if you go in the order of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Shishasi Dre Mishnah, um, appears on Daf, Shabbos Daf, Lamed Gimel, Amid Beis. Are you starting to notice a pattern? Sort of. Again, the 33rd din that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught appears on Shabbos, Lamed Gimel, Amid Beis, 33b. <coughs> anybody, any starting, anybody starting to make an association with the number 33? Lag Omer, which is a traditional, debated, but traditional um, yard site date given for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So this is, this, I, I, I got all this from Ravais, who I'm sure has good sources. He points all this out. 33rd Dean, the, the specific halacha is that uh, a person who uh, is over and bitl Torah, he uh, wastes time, doesn't, doesn't learn Torah adequately, gets a disease called Askara. That's what we learn from him. Um, and uh, the Rambam actually, in his list, in fact, Aaron has it right here, the list of the Messiah. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai appears as the next in line of our holy heritage, our holy Messiah. And indeed, if you count from Moshe Rabbeinu to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he's number 33 on the list. So the number 33 seems to stick. Uh, he's, he, and the list that goes spans from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way down to Mar Baravashi at the end of the line of the Gemara. So he's number 33. We pass in the Yushalmi tells us that we paskin, if there's a machlokus between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Meir, halacha is like Rabbi Shimon. Uh, this also pertains in Hilchot Shabbos, so it's not like, it's not only that we learn a lot of dinim from him, but we actually, halacha often accords according to him. We, uh, the exception is that he has, he is machmir, he says that muktzah machmas iser, something that's muktzah because it's used for a forbidden activity on Shabbos, he holds that that's it. Torah prohibition, it's deraisa. We don't paskin like that. We hold that it's derabanan. Um, yeah. A few of his famous teachings, Rabbi Shimon teaches us three gifts HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives to Am Yisrael, but there's a catch. The Gemara Brachos tells us they come with Yisurim, come with suffering. Do you know what this is? It's one of, one of these halachas, one of these Gemaras I quote frequently tends to come up a lot in discussion. <laughs> the three things are fairly fundamental. One is Torah, two is Eretz Yisrael, three is Olam Haba. The simple title of, of, of his statement is that anything worthwhile, you have to work for. You gotta pay your dues. Nothing's gonna come easily. But specifically, Torah, Torah of course, you gotta break your teeth. Anybody find, find it difficult to sit in day in, day out, uh, and try to, try to master uh, the holy Torah? So if you do, you're in good company, most of us do, and uh, that's part of it. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. You really can't be a good Jew just because you feel Jewish. Contrary to what some liberal Jews like to think, that I feel, good, I feel like I'm a good Jew and therefore I am, uh, no, by, by, by classic traditional definitions, you gotta sweat, you gotta work for it. It's nickling through Yisuri and you suffer, uh, and, 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 and we understand, no, uh, 
we know that Bufum Tzara Agra, that no, uh, no, 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 nothing worthwhile comes without a little toil. That's Torah, it's Eretz Yisrael. Anybody who, has, uh, who lives in Eretz Yisrael, who's moved to Eretz Yisrael, can tell you, not, uh, jokes aside, how do you make a small fortune? You bring a large one. But uh, life, is, life is challenging. Uh, socioeconomically, culturally, um, the military situation, there are all kinds of challenges that Kaddish Baruch puts in our way, and that's Badafi. You've got to earn it. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to work for it to, to take place. Olam Haba, of course, maybe is the classic example. You've got to, you've got to, life is not an amusement park, teaches Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, but of course the good news is when you do toil, when you work hard, the uh, rewards are waiting. He teaches in Pirkei Avos that there are different kinds of crowns a person can wear this keser, this keser Taira, this keser Malchus, the crown of, uh, of, of uh, monarchy, the David and his descendants wear, the keser Kahuna the, of Aaron and his descendants, the priesthood. Um, but he says there's another crown uh, called the keser Shem Tov, the crown of a good name that's a, that, that one acquires certainly through Torah, but also through Maisim Tovim, through good acts, through Chesed, through good Midos. Uh, that's one through, that one does have to strive for. And that ultimately, when somebody acquires that crown, it supersedes the other three. It's Rabbi Shimon who teaches us another famous idea in the Gemara and Shabbos, that if Am Yisrael as a whole kept two Shabbosim Kielchasa, according to the proper halachic uh, definitions, Miyad Nigolim, they would, they would immediately be redeemed. Mashiach would come. What? Two Shabbos in a row. Am Nigal. No, no, not, no. That's Goel Nefesh. Nigal like Geula. Right? Right? Goel, Goel Yisrael. We would immediately be redeemed at the end of days if we kept two Shabbos. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing we've talked about before uh, that was started by a dynamic South African rabbi and arguably in our world, in the Jewish world, as it appears to, as it exists today, one imagines that only such a thing could happen in South Africa, and that is um, the Shabbos Project. Familiar to you? Yeah. Where the initially South African in Johannesburg, where they called upon the entire Jewish community, and a lot of the Jewish community is not not observant. They don't practice halachic uh, uh, observance, and um, and they were all called upon to, in some way, shape, or form, to be part of Shabbos. And they had uh, massive, in, in, in ball stadiums, they had massive, uh, ha- uh, well, in some instances they had challah baking, and then they had a havdalah, apparently, in Malama Malka, in one of the stadiums, where many, many people were part of it, and of course it was so successful that it went viral, and, and, and now they have a Shabbos project internationally. Not, a few weeks ago there was another Shabbaton, a month ago, was it? Yeah, that they had such a thing. Uh, and it's certainly a step in the right direction. I don't think it quite rates up to what Rabbi Shimon had in mind. He, hold on, hold on, let me, let me, let me raise your hand for a second. The, uh, the um, you know, Rabbi Shimon did point out it's Shmir Shabbos Kehilchasa. They can't just keep Shabbos, they have to keep it according to the halachas of Shabbos, but certainly this is a uh, move in the right direction. What were you saying? I think it's known that they're probably not keeping Shabbos. They're keeping some semblance of it. They, of it. I, I, maybe some women are lighting Shabbos candles who would otherwise not be lighting Shabbos candles. Maybe they're having family meals. Almost certainly they don't know the Lamentes Malachos, so how can they possibly be keeping Shabbos in a halachic way? But as I said, you know, it's all good. It's all better than the alternative. If, if you're living most certainly, and, and like for example, let's say hypothetically you knew somebody who was um, a yeshiva student in Eretz Israel, independent of his family, and living in a dormitory. Would you know anybody who fits that description? Well, you'd be obligated to light Shabbos candles yourself. Um, Rebetzin Brickman has in mind all of the yeshiva students. When she lights here in this general area, however, when you go out, one of the, one of the things you should have in mind when you, when you buy your hosts that you're staying with a gift, because of course you are buying your host a gift, showing a car satov, aren't you? Uh, so, so when you buy your host a gift, nothing expensive, just something to show uh, great basic gratitude and decency, that you know that they've really put themselves out by having you over, because it's a major undertaking to have a guest. Um, so when you buy them, part of your kavanah is when you give them that, your mishtatev shabbatruta, you're participating in the Shabbos candles that, that they're lighting on your behalf. Um, so two Shabbos is in a row. Let's uh, let's 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 work for that one. Um, around the year 149, approximately, we're still in approximate dates. Chazal, the Talmud, the Midrashim are not told with with uh, dates next to them, but we can estimate that this took place. Uh, the famous story 
where um, the three Gedolim gather to discuss the Roman Empire. They are Rabbi Huda Bar Eli, Rabbi Yossi Ben Chalafta, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And Rabbi Yehuda leads by saying that the Romans did great things for the world. They built shvakim, they built markets, merchatzaos, bathhouses, gisharim, bridges, and thereby roads as well. In other words, they really upgraded, and we've talked about this too, Roman, what the Roman Empire brought human civilization in terms of the material upgrade was immense, and Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli sees their virtue and praises them for it. Uh, there's a whole discussion about how could he do that, but we're not here. We're not yet focusing on Rabbi Huda Bar Eli. I have what I believe is a, an excellent explanation. What was he thinking by praising them? Um, we know that the Torah prohibits um, gratuitous praising of non-Jews. It's called Bal Sachanim. It's one of the prohibitions of Bal Sachanim, and you can't just throw out words of praise of non-Jews for no reason. So, what was he thinking exactly? Um, and, and I think uh, Rabbi Victor Miller really gives a beautiful explanation for Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli. Uh, Rabbi Yossi was silent. He said nothing. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai turns the compliment into a criticism. He said, yes, they did all those things. And they did them exclusively for their own personal aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement. Um, and, and, uh, but they, are, they, they use them to keep us down, downtrodden and oppressed. And um, somebody is listening, overhears the conversation. Be careful that when you overhear a conversation and then being overly free with his mouth, it was a kind of Lashon Hara where he was just speaking. Uh, and some people have um, stream of consciousness kind of speech, and he didn't realize who was listening. And the Romans got word for the entire uh, story with all the various, uh, you know, with everybody being quoted, and the Romans determine at that point that Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli will be their preferred gadol. He's called Rosh Hamadabri Bochomakom. Any place where, where somebody starts speaking, he's always designated as the first speaker, which is a position of honor. Um, Rabbi Yossi, who was quiet, they don't like that so much, so they send him into exile to Tzipori, which is interesting. Rabbi Miller has a great shot on this one too. He was quiet. He neither praised them nor, nor did he endanger himself by criticizing them. And so they, as it were, from, and from their perspective, punished him. But in fact, the way Akadosh Baruch Hu has it is that everything happens in this world is all for our best. His punishment turned into a great reward. What could he do in Tzipori? Tzipori, if you remember, it had the uh, interesting distinction of being one of the only Jewish towns that didn't rebel against the Romans back in the days of the revolt. It's a big city at this point. It's a city you can visit today. It's a national site in Israel. And it will become, it will become the site of the Sanhedrin for a period. It's a, it's a national site. It's not a city. I mean, it was a city, a Roman city. Um, but it's more or less peaceful. And so Rabbi Yossi goes there and writes some of his immense Torah, including the Seder Olam Rabbah that we mentioned yesterday. Uh, so, in fact, what was, what, what was meant as a punishment turned into quite a prize. And Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, he was high of Misa, he was given the death sentence. Uh, and that sent him, together with his holy son, Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar into hiding. They go into hiding initially in the base Medrash. They're concerned that a woman... The women, women, um, maybe they might, if they're tortured, give away their whereabouts. So eventually they go off to the cave. There is a place you can go today in a Druze village in the north, uh, which is um, west, due west of Tzfat, uh, um, called Pekin, where they have the cave, supposedly. The cave where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Elazar uh, hid for those 12, but then really 13 years. And um, I believe that one, and I have a, uh, uh, I have other things to sell you too. The um, in any case, it doesn't seem to conform to any source that we know. It's just a tradition that somebody put up a sign, and so it became a fact on the ground. But actually, um, a, one of the versions of the story, one of the midrashim, actually indicated that that whole episode took place down in Lod, Lod near the, which we mentioned several times, near the airport was uh, was it was a central Jewish uh, place, central area near Israel in the south. And that's probably where they went into hiding. They're now in hiding. And same, same word here, what was intended, of course, as a punishment, the death sentence that means they're refugees and renegades and they're, they're, off, they're off hiding becomes, of course, the greatest <laughs> gift because they hide for those 12 years in the cave 
Hashem creates miracles. He creates miracles within miracles. There is a, um, usually a carob tree, we saw already, takes how many years before it sprouts? 70 years. Remember by Choni HaMagel, 70 years before it sprouts fruit. In this case, Hashem makes a carob tree sprout and immediately bear fruit. A second miracle, a ma'ayan, a brook appears, providing them with all their water needs. And between the tree and the brook, that supplies all their physical necessities. Um, they have one set of clothes, which they designate for Shabbos and Yantav, which means the rest of the week and the rest of their days, they spend buried in sand up to their necks so that they can learn Torah all day, all night. And their life is one of almost exclusive, pure spirituality. And during that 12 years, um, they study Torah on the highest of levels. It helps that their Chavrusa was Eliyahu Anavi. That I always find is a very useful thing. If you can study Eliyahu Anavi, you tend to learn a lot of Torah. Uh, and they, they had it from Eliyahu themselves. And it was from this point that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai particularly comes into his own. And the curse really becomes a blessing in disguise. Uh, that, that he, he emerges to becoming the world-renowned Gadol that enlightens the Jewish people in the description of the Zohar. The Zohar tells us great things about him. Uh, but let me hold off on that. Because he hasn't yet... So I'm going to do this chronologically. Uh, what he achieved in those 12 years, we'll talk about shortly. But let me tell the story more in, in, as, in sequence. Um, during this time... Their absence was felt. They were missed by their colleagues. Because if you have a gadol of their stature, so you're, you, know, you're, you need to ask them shilas. You're going to be lacking something. So uh, in one story, the Zohar tells the following episode. It's very instructive too. Very, very important. The Torah brings us the story of the Klolos in two episodes, two passages, two parshas. B'chukosai, we learn the Klalos at the end of Vayikra, and then again at the end of Dvarim, we learn in Parshas Kisavo. So far, so good, that's familiar. And in both cases, we hear about the terrible, devastating things that will happen to the Jewish people should they abandon Hashem. Okay. Have you ever studied this? This is very interesting. Stick with me. The first set in B'chukosai, it's understood that these are referring to Chorban Bayis Rishon. How do we know? Because there are explicit mentions of idolatry. And we know idolatry was an issue that lasted throughout Bayes Rishon, the first temple, but not afterwards. So it, it's, it's definitely talking about what happens when the Jewish people stray after the other gods. Um, and then the retribution. It's, it's in reaction to that one finds in Bukhukosai, the Klavos Bukhukosai, we find what are called Divrei Nechama, words of comfort, Famously, for example, Vizaharti as Brisi Yaakov, as Brisi Yitzchak, as Brisi Avraham, I will remember my covenant with the fathers. Hashem says, He comforts us. He says, I know, you're going you're gonna to abandon me, you're going to serve idolatry, I'm going to send you into exile, but I will never forget you. And Hashem is always there, always with us, and reminding us in the middle of the klalos, of the curses, are Hashem's constant reminder that He's with us. In Kisavo, it's different. And this is the part that bothers the sages. Rabbi Yehuda bar Eli, Rabbi Yossi and others are learning. Uh, it's a different Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi ben Yehuda, and they're learning and they're stumped. Because in Kisavo, Kisavo is definitely talking about the second temple. Why is it the second temple? There's not one mention of Vodazara. And we know in the second temple there were all kinds of problems, but Vodazara was not one of them. There was Sinas Chinam, they were saying Brachas with that, they say Brachas Torah with that proper Kavana, but it wasn't Vodazara. And indeed, towards that end, the, the, the discussion in Kisavo um, does not talk once about Avodazara. And pointedly, there's not one word, at least not, at, not, at, not on the surface at least, of Nechama. There's no comfort. Um, have you ever gone through and sat down and really learned the Klalos? It's devastating. It's devastating, especially if you know anything about Jewish history, because it all comes true. And you ever learn the Holocaust? I, I sometimes have guided Yad Vashem with a group that's very Holocaust knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the Holocaust. And what I do, they give you those, you ever go to the, Holoc uh, the, the Yad Vashem and you got those speakers, and I'm like speaking a little quietly, and everybody like hears it, they, they turn on their frequency to me and they hear my voice. And in one instance, all I do as we walk through the rooms is read the psukim from Parshish Kisavo. And it is devastating, because you see, Mom, is exactly what's anticipated in the psukim came through in the camps. 
and in the, in the, in the ghettos and in the, in the death marches. And there's not one word of comfort. And they're bothered by it. They don't understand what's the difference. Now we know that tshuva and the nechama in the first set reflect the fact that the Jews in fact make tshuva in Bavel and there's comfort. They come back and they rebuild the base of Mikdash. In Kisavo, there's neither. And that indeed indicates an extended gullus. And it's not just an academic theoretical problem. They're bothered because they're not sure how, how they and we are supposed to relate to the ongoing exile that we're enduring right now. This is a job for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but he's not around. So they do the, well, they do the logical thing under the circumstances. They write up the kasha on a little note. They tie it to the wings of a, of a, of a yona, of a pigeon, and they send the pigeon, and the pigeon flies into the cave. And the message they deliver to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and he gets the shayla, and he doesn't know the answer. But it's okay, because his chavrusa does. Eliyahu is there, and he gives the following answer. He says, in the first set of Kvalos, in Bechukosai, um, when the tshuva was evident, the Diver and the are going to be evident, everything's going to be on the surface. And remember this, we talked about this. In the destruction of the first temple, everything was on the surface. They blew it, they were rebuked by the prophets, they made tshuva, there were no secrets. But you remember in the second temple, it was all under the surface. They pretended to be the tzaddikim, but meanwhile they hid their sins, and so... Therefore, this gullus is the hidden gullus. We don't really know how it's going to come out in the end. Stand and stretch. Uh, stand and stretch. Um, we don't know how it's going to come out in the end. So um, Eliyahu explains that. He says, no, it's true. In Kisavo, there's no apparent words of comfort. But look again. He says, you'll find the revelation of Gula hidden because everything's hidden in this gullus. It's a very deep idea. There's a lot you could expound here. He quotes, he gives several examples. I'll give you one. Hashem points out that they're going to be sold in slavery. They're just going to be sold in slavery. And nobody's going to buy them. They're going to be sold and nobody's going to buy them. Which, I don't know about you, that to me sounds fairly bleak. Um, and they're going to feel oppressed. But Eliyahu says no. In fact, um, the issue is they're going to be, they're going to try to sell the Jews on the slave market but nobody will be able to subjugate us. And indeed, if you look back, if you consider, maybe I'll have to make this argument in the next few months, but if you consider our Gullus over the last 1900 years, um, they've tried as best they can to destroy our spirits, to murder us, to do everything that's conceivable that you could do to a people, and look at us. Apparently they haven't been successful at subjugating us, and that's exactly what the Pasuk promises. And indeed, there are Divrei Nuchama all around, you just have to know how to learn them. Hashem indeed never will abandon us. And, um, this, and so Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai writes this message of hope, uh, uh, right, hidden in the Psukim, in fact, the Zohar indicates even the date of the final Geula are contained in the words of the Klala in Parshish Kisavo. We just don't know how to read them. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai writes all of this in a message, ties it to the wings of the dove, of the, of the pigeon, and the pigeon flies back to the Gedolim. Um, when the Caesar finally dies 12 years later Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Elazar emerge from the cave and they see that one of the first sights that they behold what's the story? You know, the story it's on Shabbos Lamed Gimel they see farmers working in the um, harvesting their crops down below in the valley and they react they say they're leaving the eternal life and they're busying themselves with uh, mundane, disworldly activities. What, you're going to go to college and not learn Torah for the next 20, 50 years? Right? That's, that, that, was, that was their implication. They've just, remember their, their, their point of view. They've just been learning on the most transcendent level, standing with their next, up to their necks in sands. They could learn with Elia Navi all the divine secrets of the universe. And uh, they walk out and they see other people toiling for a living. They can't contemplate it. And so, again, the logical thing under the circumstances, everywhere their eyes glance, darts of fire somehow miraculously bounce, out, uh, bounce off and reflect out from their eyes and burns. And a baskel comes down and proclaims 
I'm not sure the Basque actually has the Yiddish accent. That's the way I picture it. Well, you cut, you cut, you, you, you I, I send you out of my cave, and you're gonna destroy my world. Get back there. And, and the Basque sends them back to the cave. We don't need this. We don't need this kind of uh, behavior in, in 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 the real world, in the physical world. Um, he says, Go back to your your cave. So Rav Zevlev has an interesting question. He says, Okay, so they became spiritual hotheads. You know, or, or, I don't know, let's say in terms we can understand, sometimes a guy goes to yeshiva and becomes a crazed balchuva. You know, and, and can you picture the stereotype? Right? So, what are you going to do? They're, they're, they're so out of touch with this world, what's the antidote? Send them back to go learn more Torah? Right? They'll be even more fanatical? That's the idea. They're not fanatical, but they're full of spirituality. Right? So, Rav Zev Left says like this. He says, no, actually what happens is like this. When you initially, Im, in, on an immature level, learn Tyra, there is this kind of divine spark thing that happens to people. And indeed, the reaction can be fire darts from the eyes. What happens, though, to a seasoned, mature Talmud Chacham is uh, sophistication and moderation. And they go back for a year to really master the Tyra and come out so secure in their learning and in their understanding of how Torah is meant to be manifested in this world that they can actually live in this world. They can integrate the physical with the spiritual. And indeed, after the 13th year, after another 12 months passes, why 12 months? Mishpat Rishayim, the Gehenim, right? The judgment of, of, they're not wicked, but that's the same amount of time that people are judged in Gehenim. They emerge again. And again, they behold the farmers and Rabbi Elazar is about to get going. He starts the dark start flying from his eyes, but his father stops him. And one can say maybe uh, zealous youth and the wisdom of age. So Rabbi Shimon is, is wiser with age, and he mends all the places that were burnt, and he says, no, it's enough that we're in the world. I think everybody will play their role, and they're people whose, whose portion it is to be pure spirituality and others who work in the fields. On the way out, they encounter an old man, and he's, counter, ca he's, he's carrying two bundles. And they ask him, what are the two bundles for? He says, it's almost Shabbos, and one is connected Zahor, and the other one is connected Shamor. Each one has a different function for Shabbos. They're flowers. They're something I'm going to use to celebrate Shabbos Kodesh for Onik Shabbos. And they, they, have two, they have two functions. One is positive, one is negative. And the sophistication of the man's answer so... Uh, impress, impresses them that they see that Klal Yisrael is holding indeed on such a high level that they are appeased. They're not, they're, not, they're not disillusioned with the state of the people after all. And they settle down in the, in the, um, in the, in the city of Tiveria. Tiveria has a problem, they soon discover. It's uninhabitable by Kohanim because it's situated and if you remember we stood there at the beginning of the year. Who was, who was there? Who was on that trip? Right, so we stood in Severi at the beginning of the year, and I pointed out that actually where Herod Antipas, the son of the famous Herod, built Tiveria in honor of the Caesar, this Roman city, he built it in between two biblical Jewish places, Hamas in the south, Rakat in the north, and it was built over a cemetery. And so Kohanim couldn't go there. There was all, the, all those dead bodies all over the place, and Rabbi Shimon decides quite famously at the end of this Gemara, to, I'm including much of the story because it really is impactful, I don't, tell, I don't always tell everything, he, is a, he wants to demonstrate his Akara Satov to Kaddish Baruch Hu for everything that he's done for him in his life and the, the redemption, bring him out of the cave. And so you, how do you show Akara Satov to Hashem? You can't. So do something nice for people. That's our mission in this world. You want to be grateful to Kaddish Baruch for being alive, for all the gifts he gives you, go do a chesed. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, in, a, in a complicated system that is described in the Gemara and Shabbos and elsewhere, he, fix, he fixes the place and identifies exactly where the tumah is. He isolates it and makes the place habitable by Jews. And it's from, that's the turning point of Tiveria. Tiveria had, had up until this time been a Roman pagan city. And from this time on, it's going to emerge as one and then eventually the Jewish center in Eretz Israel for almost a millennium. We're going to be hearing a lot about Tiveria in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, the end of the story is like this. The uh, <coughs> Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's father-in-law, although in one, in, according to one authority, he's really the son-in-law, is Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, 
Pinchas Benyar is another great Tana. There's so many great figures here that I haven't spoken about, but he was the one, for example, whose donkey is so from that when he feeds when he when he feeds him some um, hay, the donkey won't take it because there's not there, um, he has there have Chumos and Maestros haven't been separated from the hay. Is he buried in the cemetery? Yes, he is in the bottom on the very bottom of the cemetery is is, is the traditional one identified by the Arizal. In fact, the Arizal moved. The, the earlier site of Rapinchas Benyar's kever was up north in Gush Chalav, and the Arizal said that's a mistake. He actually belongs here at the foot of Tzfat. And from the Arizal's days, uh, they have a new they have a new uh, there for Rapinchas Benyar. Um, when uh, 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 even more famously, Rapinchas Benyar is the author of the Brisa at the end of Sota that becomes the basis of the Mesila Shisharim. Who's learned the Mesila Shisharim? The Ramchazit. He bases it on the various 13 attributes, levels that you, um, that you climb in relative Kedusha, in Midos, in the world, and it's based on the Brisa by Rav Pinchas Benyar. So that's, that's a little bit of Rav Pinchas Benyar. When he sees his either father and son, or son-in-law, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he sees that he's in a deplorable physical condition. His skin from all those years of standing in sand is now dry to the point of being cracked. And it's painful to look at, and it's so painful that Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair cries, and inadvertently his salty tears fall on the skin, the cracked, dry skin of Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, causing even further pain. And, um, yeah, sure. And um, he cries and he says, he says, Woe that I've seen you, Bakach. Woe to me that I've seen you in this state. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai corrects him. He says, No, no. Ashrecha Shirisani Bakach. Fortunate are you that you saw me in this state. And it's a great statement. It's layered the statement with meaning. On the simple shot, it means, Had you not seen me in this state of physical deprivation, uh, that reflects the fact that I've been able to attain uh, immense spiritual heights, I would not have been Bekach. And I encourage you to go look up the Ben Ishchai's commentary. It's in a book called the, uh, the Ben Yohiyoga, where he talks about the Kabbalistic formula of Kach, that he, that he sees it in a state of Kach, Koach, uh, that's a, su su a supreme spiritual state. In the cave, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai achieved perfection, Shlemus. Hashem revealed himself personally, the Zohar tells us, in the introduction to the Zohar. Who's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai from this point on in history? The Gemara in Sukkah tells us. The Gemara says, Re'isi bnei aliyah, I've seen uh, people who are on the ascent, who are going up towards the Kaddish Baruch Hu, who've received the, nothing less than the face of the Shekhinah. They are few. Rabbi Shimon says. He doesn't know everything. He says, they may number as many as a thousand. If there are a thousand Bnei Aliyah, one thing I do know is that I, I'm fortunate to be numbered among them, as is my son. And if there are a hundred, I know one thing, that I'm fortunate to be numbered among them, as is my son. And if there are two, I know that we are them. I don't know how many there are, but I know, based on what Kaddish Baruch has revealed, that we are among them. Gemara explains they are more inside, as it were, literally in Hashem's inner circle of Kedoshim, than the Malachi Asharis, than the administering angels themselves. Zochin v'nichnosim bli reshut. They merit and they get to go into Kaddish Baruch Hu without permission. The way I pictured it is like kind of like um, I remember volunteering on a secular kibbutz, and. Um, Actually, I was, I, I was, we had a connection with Aryeh Ben-Gurion, who was the nephew of David. And he was a great-grandfather in Kibbutz HaShita, Bet, Bet HaShita in the Jezreel Valley. And he described having four generations on the kibbutz. And his great-grandkids walked in unannounced, uninvited, grabbed a, grabbed a banana from the refrigerator and left. So that kind of relationship where they could just informally go in and grab. So the, the, that's my image. Zochin v'nichnoslin b'lirashus. That's Kaviyachal, the way, the way Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had that. They, they were in the inner circle with the Kaddish Baruch They could grab an apple from the fridge kind of thing. The Zohar tells us that the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai will be Rosh Tzadikim in Ganeidin. He'll be the head of the Tzadikim in Ganeidin which I present to you as a kasha. I don't have an answer to this. Rabbi Pitim, can I, can I, maybe you have a, an answer to this. This is my kasha, I don't know. 
The Zohar says this. He is the head of the tzaddikim in Ganeidim, Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yuchai. And we're familiar and used to lots of statements, superlative statements, Rabbi Shimon, that in Lichora, either we, I, I, there are at least two ways of understanding it. Um, actually, he's not the author of the Zohar. His, the author of the Zohar is, Rabbi, according to the Zohar itself, it's Rabbi Abba, who was a student recording his Rebbe's teaching. So it's not far off to say he's the author, but, but technically, Rav Gottlieb corrected me once on that. Um, yeah, so the, Rav uh, David Gottlieb. The, um, but the, the, the question is like this. Do we understand these expressions, these statements of Rabbi Shemar literally, or is it typical Lashon Guzma that he's immense, and it's the way we've seen lots of Lashon Guzma that are not taken quite literally, if it's literal, does that mean to say that he was, he's on a higher darga than the Abu Sikidoshim, Moshe Rabbeinu, his own Rebbe, Rebbe Akiva, Hillel, David Amelech? It means Bedoro, or does it mean... It doesn't say Bedoro. And, and, and this is one example. There are many of these superlative statements. So I don't know how to quite take it. it, it my perception, and maybe this is the Litvak in me, my perception is it's Lashon Guzma. And I looked around a little bit. I've seen there's an indication that I'm not the only one who has the sense. It's a Lashon Guzma, and it's a tricky thing. You want to f- phrase it properly, but it, it, it's to say that he was immense, Bidero. But that you could see how it's easily confused, and it'll certainly lay the groundwork for later instances where, I, how do I phrase it here? I try to be careful. Um, who uh, seem to uh, emerge, let's say, they present outsized. Uh, descriptions of certain gedolim. One finds this sometimes, let's say, in Hasidic movements, Hasidic circles, where the Reb is described with these extreme superlatives that also sometimes puts them above the Avos and Moshe and so on. Or maybe there's truth. I, I don't know. I don't have. I don't have. I don't have an explanation for it. I was just going to say, Mamish, right, you know, right. He's so precise. Right. You know, I mean, I'm running now working on the Nusach of the Matseva, the tombstone of my mother. Your mother, right. And I brought that also there, you know. So, you know because the, 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 the lifter has to pay the cheshmer for that. He said he was such a person. You're saying, if it, I'm going to repeat because it's being recorded. If it's too if it's too much, that's not good for the person, for the neshama, because then they've got to be held accountable to that level. Why is the person passes away? Why is that a problem? Uh, right. Right, so I don't, do you have any? Yes, no, I also don't, I also don't. So anyway, I present, um, my, my, my uh, common, common theme is I present the messy part of history and you go figure out the answers. I, I don't have them all. I don't have, I don't have a lot of them. Um, Tyra has four levels of pshat. We talked about that recently. Pardes. There's the pshat, pshat, the perush, the simple explanation, the remes, reios, drosh, sod, um, these all correspond to the four Kabbalistic worlds described in the Zohar. The simplest is the Olam Ha'asiyah, this world, the world that we're, the prosaic world, world that we're familiar with. The next exalted world is what's called the Olam Ha'yitzira, translated as cre- the world of creation, whatever that means exactly. The higher level is Olam Habriya, which is Yesh Ma'ayin, world, something from nothing. The highest level, Sod, corresponds to Atsilus. We know that throughout history, and I, if you've been paying attention, we've actually traced this from Adam Arishon down the Doridoros, down through Avram Avinu, who brought us the Sefer Yetzirah. We saw, we saw many Gedolim um, learning and teaching, not just, not just uh, the simple halachas, but also Kabbalistic ideas, the deep mystical secrets of the world. They penetrated the upper levels. We met not that long ago Rabbi Nechunia ben Akana, who brought the world the Sefer HaBahir. We know that Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, they learned that the Darshan, the Maisim Rekava, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues recorded the Sefer Yetzirah for the first time. They wrote it down as a book. We know Rabbi Ishmael wrote a book called the Pirkei Hechalos, another Kabbalistic classic. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has understood that he took all of this to the next level. Some of the descriptions from this point on, we find um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai walking in Tiveria. And um, he meets Eliyahu on the street. And Eliyahu informs him, uh, Akadosh Baruch Hu has a request. He'd like to hear your, what's called, Sod Hadvarim your secret explanation of matters. Hashem is curious to learn your Torah, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I don't know if you realize the ramifications of that request. 
why would Hashem be curious to hear any mortals shot or sewed or anything of, uh, of the Torah if it all comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, you hear the multi-levels of irony in the, state, in the statements this and many, uh, I just I, I share this with you as just one of, of really many, many other stories like this in the Zohar and other Kabbalistic works, they abound obviously we can't take them on the surface level they can't be, they can't mean what they uh, Hashem doesn't need to learn Torah from Rabbi Shimba Yochai, the truest Mekubalim do understand them we can't but what the, I tell you this story because they offer a glimpse of a world that is otherwise often inaccessible to us. There's something going on in Kabbalah that does not, that eludes us, that does not, is not, not immediately accessible to us. The Mukubalim get this idea, Barak, before you leave for No, no, let's go on the way out, but let me just say this one idea. The Mukubalim often say um, that we can have Yidiyah without necessarily a Hasaga. Have you heard that before? There's, I can explain. Uh, this is what this is the way I explain Kabbalah. I could, let's say, know it and give over certain ideas, but it doesn't mean I really conceptualized it. There's a difference between knowledge and then deep probing. I can have the first, but not necessarily the second. The Zohar tells us not just Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but his generation. His generation was among the most exalted of all times. They were zakaim, they were chasidim. Zakai means totally meritorious. They uh, were, were righteous on, uh, on, on, on an exalted level. They were yirei chet, they feared sin. They were actually comparable. Does anybody remember this is a good history review? We've been waiting for this generation. There was another generation on par, on this, on such a level. And I'll give you the hint. Do you have it, Aaron? Oh, you're almost there. You're, you're thinking of it, you're, you're getting the wrong name. That's a very similar sounding name. That's why I know you're right, but it's not Yechezkel, but rather, who, who? I'll give you the, the hint is, Rashi brings this in Parshas Noyach. They are the two examples of the generation who didn't need to see a rainbow. And the answer is Akiva, Akiva, Akiva um, muffled and under his hood, but correct nonetheless. He, he managed to convey to us Chizkiyahu HaMelech, who, remember, revamped the entire educational system, was almost the Mashiach, and his generation and, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's generation are, exam are the two examples brought in history of the generations who are so exalted, they don't need to see a rainbow. Why do we need to see a rainbow? Since the, since the, the Mabul? Since the flood? What's that? Right, the, the, the rainbow is the os bris, it's the sign of the covenant that the Kaddish Baruch Hu is not going to destroy the world again. Who needs to be reminded of that? Sinners, you know, people are kind of messing up and thinking, uh-oh, uh, maybe, maybe I've gone too far. Oh, there's a rainbow, we're okay. Don't stare at it too long, it's one of the things we're not supposed to look at for extended periods, but, uh, but the reminder of the rainbow is good for us. These generations were so exalted, they don't need that reminder. They don't need, they don't need the rainbow. How they reach this generation is not explained. How they reach this, this level is not explained. Um, it seems that their greatness is due to Rabbi Shem Yochai. He was alive and, they and therefore they married. Because we never find in any institutional way Rabbi Shem Yochai, for example, going out and teaching Torah or changing the educational system. Uh, you know, we, we have stories about him and certainly he cut a very inspirational figure to, to, to generation. But it's not like he was the king, like Chizkiah was the king who could have the power and authority to revamp the entire educational system. We have, the Pasuk says that it wasn't an Amaaretz from Dan to Beersheva, the whole expanse of Eretz Yisrael in the days of Chizkiah. But uh, we don't, we couldn't, that couldn't have happened in these times of, of this Shas of of immense persecution. When could he have done that? It seems that the generation merited because he merited which is a major point that I want to hit home. I think there's a central idea that's terribly misunderstood in the world today. You're going to hear how relevant this is. Apparently, he sat in the cave learning, and because he was learning Torah, that itself had an impact on his generation. That's the idea. When a guggle sits and learns, they don't have to be doing the world that we have it in, the Aristotelian world, the rational world that we live in, is one that we tend to fall, we were seduced by this idea that it's got to be results. Show me, well, what the God will do for me? He's really a God in Dora, but he never, he never said, have a nice day to me. How could he be a God in Dora? 
right? How can he, he just sits there learning all day? What does he do to contribute to society, they'll ask, right? How come he doesn't go out and do kiruv, the gadol? How come he doesn't, uh, you know, take it, uh, go out and, and have an internet site where he spreads his words and so on? How come he doesn't write more books? Some of our gadolim we've had, in it, some of them wrote lots of books. Some of them, Rav Steinman has a lot of peace, halacha. We don't know, he doesn't have the same number of books of, of other gadolim in previous generations. Um, right? So, so that's apparently it. Benefit us, benefit the generation by existing, by being in the world and sitting and learning Torah. And if they do other things, that's, that's certainly a plus, but they don't need to. That seems to be the shot by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's generation, which is, I don't know if you're hearing the contemporary relevance of this, but as the world is conflicted today, uh, especially the Torah, the Torah, the society that tries to um, learn Torah full time. Ari, you mentioned such questions. You mentioned it recently as well. This is a you have good timing walking in now. That, that this is this is something that takes a certain leap of faith to recognize, but it's certainly part 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 of our Torah system to understand that the learning Torah itself has a mystical power beyond anything we can perceive. How powerful. Zohar tells us the Shechina itself was present in Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's Chevraya. It's described as a Chevraya society, this inner circle of great people, and it's not like any other generation. So those secrets of Torah that had previously been hidden are now newly revealed for this, inter, this, this cadre of special mukubalim. What's called, this, for example, the sod of the pasuk ve'el ish benidas to masa lo sikrav legalos ervasa to a woman in the need of her impurity don't come close to reveal her nakedness. This is the source for the Torah prohibition against touching women, looking at women excessively, and the rest. Um, that actually has a profound kabbalistic, multi-level kabbalistic implication and that's revealed for the first time to this generation and then recorded in the Zohar um, hold the thought for a second Barak will you, will you forget it? no good the Zohar tells us bringing for the Pesach in Daniel Daniel teaches us maskilim. maskilim means those who understand Yazhiru will radiate Kizor Harakia like a bright light in the firmament Kizor that's where the name of course the Zohar is taken from the Zohar of the firmament and that the Zohar tells us this pasuk refers to none other than Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his colleagues. Uh, I should mention then who were his who were his colleagues, who were these exalted uh, people. They included his son, certainly Rabbi Elazar. They included Rabbi Abba, who I just mentioned was the actual author of the Zohar. Um, some say Rabbi Abba is synonymous with had another name in the in the Gemara, Rav, as in the great Rav. The, the, uh, one of the leaders of the newly um, uh, re-emerging uh, Torah center of Bavel, Rav and Shmuel. We've learned, this year alone we've learned a lot of Torah from Rav and, and the Gemara Makos, but he is certainly one of the primary names in all of the Gemara. Uh, maybe he's sometimes called Rabbi Abba. Other figures are Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Yitzchak, and there are many others as well. They, they come from a tradition. It's not like they're inventing anything. Their tradition extends back to Har Sinai, but again, they're newly exalted. They're given certain gifts in this generation to penetrate back to Mysabracious itself, to the act of creation of the universe through what are called Razin Ilayin, exalted secrets. And they're given permission to bring those secrets down in the Zohar. The Zohar itself, you should know, is an Aramaic commentary on the Chumash, on the Torah. It's seen with all the great works of Kabbalah as the most fundamental work of Kabbalah. And here's where, and I'm going to take a little bit, not really a tangent, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to not focus on Rabbi Shimon Bar to talk about what I think is an important issue, because we're talking about basic Judaism here and how you can discuss this in academic circles and understand. Um, here's something that we have to try to understand too. After the generation of Rabbi Shimon, the Zohar itself goes into hiding and remains concealed for 11 centuries. Are you familiar with that? We didn't have the Zohar for 11 centuries, and it comes out in the Middle Ages. And critics, and especially in the academic world, there is a one of the Zohar was written from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the time of the mid to late Tanaim, this time period. We said it's around 150 of the Common Era, something along the, along those lines, and um, and then concealed. 
and the critics, and in universities, in academia, there's a, one of their um, hobbies, one of their fun sports, is deconstructing anything, any organized religious ideas. They don't do it, they don't just pick on the Jews, they pick on organized Islam and Christianity and all the rest, um, because they love to be superior to everybody. And if you can pick apart their, their, their holy cows and their traditions, then, they, then, then, uh, you know, then, then they've somehow succeeded. In any case, the critics, but it's not just the critics in academia, there are actual um, Jews who have questions, um, Torah Jews, including Rav Yaakov Emden, who have passions on the whole um, existence of the Zohar as follows. Um, here are some of the difficulties. We say, and you're gonna hear me say this very strongly, um, Shas, the Gemara, the entire recorded oral tradition of our Torah, which includes Midrashim as well, what we call you know, Chazal, this period that we're in right now, um, is the final decisive recording of everything that's Judaism. If it's not in there, it's not Judaism. And the Zohar is never once mentioned in all of Shas. It's not mentioned in a Medrash. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai certainly is. These Gedolim who surrounded him certainly are. But the actual existence of their book was not. Okay? I'm mentioning all this not to introduce doubt into your mind, but because this is simply true, and we have to understand it, and if you're ever in a situation where you have to explain and defend tradition, so here's the, here's, here, here are the, here's the outline of the issue. Um, the heretical view is that it was not concealed for 11 centuries, that it was actually written by a great Torah sage in the 13th century by the name of Rav Moshe de Leon. Um, he didn't, he didn't, the, the, our tradition is that he discovered it. But the critics say, no, he wrote it. He wasn't a guy, he was a rough. He was an exalted figure himself. No, Rav Moshe de Leon. That's how he's up. Because you're familiar with most Rishonim who are Rashi or Ramban or Rambam. No, he's Rav Moshe de Leon. Um, Rav Yaakov Emden, though, in addition to this, this is, this is the, you hear the fundamental Kashi, right? Where was this book? And how come it's not mentioned in Shas? If Shas is our record of all of Judaism, well, what about the Zohar? Where does that fit in? Uh, furthermore, um, Rav Yaakov Emden uh, um, points out a number of seeming inconsistencies. Um, there, it, the Zohar seems to contain halachos that are anachronistic, meaning they seem to be later post-scheme, later ideas that couldn't possibly have come from the second century but if the Zohar dates back to the second century, then what are they doing there? Um, there seems to be a mention of historical, uh, historical realities as late as the Crusaders fighting the Muslims. Wait, how did that happen in the second century that the Crusaders were fighting the Muslims since that's a much later phenomenon, Middle Ages? Uh, oh, oh, so you, I'm gonna give you answers to all these questions. Um, expressions are used in the Zohar that were also anachronistic and also culturally um, dystonic. The, uh, the, the expression esnoga is the, is the word for shul, but it's the word for shul in, the, in Portuguese, which is a language that certainly in the second century they were not speaking in Jewish circles. Later, there'd be big communities in Portugal, but not then. Um, they, in the Zohar, one finds nekudos, vowels, that were not used explicitly um, in, the, in the Talmudic period. But Yaakov Emden asks all these questions, but then he also points out that the Zohar is accepted, an accepted work. He quotes Rishonim, who absolutely defend it. Uh, so he's simply asking the Kashis, his intention is not to subvert the legitimacy of the Zohar. He just doesn't understand these issues. And here are some answers. Um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, <laughs> according to traditional explanation, didn't want the Zohar to exist in the world, and that was intentional. He wanted to keep it in his own, for his own reasons and save it for a future generation who is ready to receive it or alternately perhaps in greater need of it. One can understand that in the Middle Ages, which were unprecedented in the oppression, what the Zohar, and we're going to see what a massive impact the Zohar will have on those generations positively. Um, also in the modern world, the, uh, I the inspiration provided by the Zohar and the Kabbalistic teachings 
we're in a generation, let's say our generation, that's marked by cynicism and snark, but also spiritual emptiness in questing what the Zohar means, and that Rabbi Shimon Chai very easily could have concealed it like a, like a message in a bottle for a, a time that needed it. Um, the, you, you said this, somebody said this, that you know, the fact that there may be anachronisms is not a big deal. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who said this? Ari, you got this right. Not, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer, uh, you know, that he revealed wisdom that orally that only in later stages evolved into a Zohar. Meaning, meaning that later authors wound up taking the traditions, recording it in their own terms, maybe using a, a Portuguese term or using or describing something by uh, making historical references, but the ideas come from Rabbi Shimon himself. The, uh, certainly it's not without his, his abilities to have foreseen future events. He certainly could have done that. Um, Rav Menachem Kasher has a, has a piece, he says that um, we know that many Rishonim cited unfamiliar Midrashim before the Zohar emerged. And when the Zohar emerged, we found those exact Midrashim in the Zohar. I don't know if you realize what that means, but that means that there were all kinds of things that were concealed and then later revealed, and they seemed to check out by the dates. So that's a very strong argument that legitimates, legitimates the dating to the second century. Um, here's a very strong argument. If you compare the Zohar... Uh, Rav Moshe de Leon, de Leon wrote a lot of works, and he has a distinctive style, and it's nothing like the Zohar. Did he write it? Could he have written it? I guess, in theory, he could have. It doesn't make sense that he would have. Nothing that he wrote ever indicated that he had the ability to write such a work. Um, here's what's very, very likely in my mind. Um, in the pre-printing press world, manuscripts were hand-copied. But you know how they used to learn? It's the same way. Did anybody have a Gemara on them? Anybody have one of the Gemaras that they use? Yeah, great. Thanks, Ari. So I, I'm just, I'm, let's, let's see what we find here. Here's somebody's Gemara. Uh, right? In the Gemaras, as you, as you learn them, oh, this person is like me. He, he keeps, everything's neat. But I, if, if it was anybody in my shir, I wouldn't be surprised. They make marginal glosses. They make notes in the margins, no? So what happens, you know, you got your, you got your precious manuscript, and these things were worth a fortune because they were hand-copied. And then they be copied again. It happened not just with the Zohar, but with lots of works that as they're hand copying the original text, marginal notes, glosses, got actually incorporated as part of the actual text. So if Esnoga or, or Crusaders or any other anachronism figured in the margins, maybe some later copyist would have, would have uh, included it in, um, in the actual text of the Zohar. Um, None of the preceding explanations matter in light of the last point I'm going to make on the subject, and that is as follows. Um, we follow a tradition. Our tradition is decided by the Gedolim. The Gedolim have, are given from the Torah the authority and the legitimacy to understand what's legitimate and what's not. And um, the Poskim, the Rishonim, the Achronim, have you know, everybody, everybody has accepted the Zohar. That's all that really matters. So you can logically explain and defend it against the critics, but in the end, from the Mechaber, Rav Yosef Karo, to Rav Moshe um, Ischelis, the Ramah, uh, to the Vilna Gaon, to the Arizal, everybody embraces the Zohar as legitimate work. So there's really no question for us. The Arizal goes so far as to say that we follow the Zohar and Halacha unless it's contradicted by the Bavli Talmud. And sometimes there's some discrepancies, but um, this is really the definitive answer. Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. So I, I'm going to um, I, I'm going to uh, share that with you when we get we, when when the Zohar comes out. We're going to see this time in history. I have a legend to share that has no way of proving its authenticity, uh, and we'll get there. But um, we don't know. That's why it was lost. Uh, I'll say right now since you're asking the question. So, um, a legend that's not verified, but who knows, could be. At the end of the Ramban's life, I think I mentioned this in the Ramban Shul when we toured there a few weeks ago. Uh, at the end of the Ramban's life, he came there to Israel after the uh, public disputation. And um, legend has it that he discovered the manuscript of the Zohar and sent it back to Spain, where it was where uh, Rav Moshe de Leon was a, traveled a lot, and he wound up in possession of the manuscript, and he ultimately published it. Absolutely plausible. Could have happened that way. That's one of the legends that we have. Yeah, all right.
does uh, the Zorba claim to have uh, been inspired during the talks with uh, Eliyahu Hanabi? Like, Eliyahu Hanabi was a uh, the Russa, so I mean, yes, does the Zohar indicate that he talked to them? Yes. And, and that, but like the stuff in it, is that available to the sources, or, or is he just reading their tradition? Like uh, Rabbi Shimon. I don't understand your question, I'm sorry. Is Shimon just reading down his tradition that he got from uh, Rabbi Kiva? So apparently, based on what I said before, and I think you might have walked out of the room when I was talking about this. Oh, you might have heard it. Okay, so so it's definitely their tradition is based on a Messiah that goes back to Har Sinai, but it was amplified by secrets that were revealed to him by Eliyahu Novi. Correct, and and the Shin itself appeared to them. So it's all a combination of all of the above. Um, tomorrow we get to meet um, some of the other immense figures from this period. I'm going to start by focusing, so come on time. Elam was, was, was reacting to the fact that we really do start after Mincha. And, and some of the greatest stories and, and, and events and significant uh, personalities uh, we'll, be, we'll be meeting now. Tomorrow we're going to start with Rabbi Mir Balanes. So, that's Rosh Hashem.